The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals participating in the show. All persons described or mentioned in the podcast should be considered innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. This podcast contains subject matters such as violence and graphic descriptions along with adult language, which may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. On September 20th, 2004, a 22-year-old woman is found murdered in the home of her boyfriend. What exactly happened to Rebecca Gould? You're listening to the Mysterious Bruise Podcast, and tonight we bring you the case of Rebecca Gould. Welcome to a deep, dark, dank, moist basement somewhere in the bowels of Georgia. This evening we have with us Miss Jennifer Jen Bucoats, and we will be discussing the latest developments in the Rebecca Gould case. As anyone that follows true crime knows, Rebecca's case was featured on Dateline back, I think, about three or four days ago, maybe Friday night at the latest. So we wanted to get Jen in and clear up some of the glaring problems that we saw in their coverage, as well as discuss how the case is really not completely cold. Even though we have a confession from one William Billy Miller, we are going to pick Jen's brain and see what she has to say about the Dateline episode and some other questions that still are out there. Now, just to give you some background on Miss Bucoltz, she is a former U.S. Army counterintelligence agent, decorated veteran in the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. She holds a Bachelor of Science in Criminal Justice, a Master's of Arts in Criminal Justice, and a Master's of Science in Forensic Sciences. She is currently a professor of forensics and criminal justice at American Military University. So without further ado, this is our interview with Miss Jen Bucoltz. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are interviewing Miss Jennifer Bucoltz on the Rebecca Gould case today. And this is on the heels of a Dateline episode that to say is controversial is an understatement. We first covered Rebecca's case way back on episode 46 in the archives. If you want to go back, I suggest you listen to that. If you do not know about Rebecca's case, it's a long one. It's excess of two hours. Uh, Miss Kim Phillips contacted us and she saw something in me and coach that we didn't see in ourselves. And she gave us all of her information. She put us in contact with Miss Bucoltz 
and also Miss Townsend. And so we all, I'll never forget this. It was a hundred degrees that day. And I was on the phone at work and we had the kids out, <laughs> the kids outside. And so my principal looks up and I've got my earbuds in and I'm pacing with my phone. And he's like, what are you doing? I was like, I promise I'll explain just not right now. <laughs> and so I'm asking questions, things that didn't sit well with us. And originally when we covered it, I got hung up on Casey's truck, the whole, just the time frame between him going to Batesville for his dad, his dad had his truck, that whole thing just didn't sit well with us. And then I think a couple of months later, Jennifer, that's when you had done your YouTube video where you had kind of dissected how she was attacked mm-hmm. and the way it, it, the way it had to go down. Yeah. Was there anything besides Casey, which we all know, um, that's a a huge glaring thing that just doesn't sit well with anyone that looks into this case, but was there anything now looking back since William Miller has been arrested that you and talking with George and Catherine that just didn't sit well with y'all, but you didn't put out there? Well, something that recently came to light and unfortunately for Casey supporters, it has to do with Casey, but We just recently figured out that the bed in his bedroom had been moved after the murder in order to cover up a big blood stain on the carpet. And so going back to this ridiculous claim of his that he went home the day after the murder and saw nothing out of place is just, it's literally unbelievable. Um, I don't think there's anybody on earth with two brain cells that's going to go in their house, especially when they've already been told their girlfriend's missing and not notice furniture having been moved around. And what really bugs me is I'm not sure investigators realized it. I mean, they moved the bed because they photographed the big blood stain under it and the blood spatter on the wall in those two corners. But nobody, like, when Casey was interviewed, even when William was interviewed, nobody ever brought up, you know, who moved the furniture or Casey, why didn't you notice that your bed had been moved? Right. (laughs) And And so that bugs me. That was the thing that I noticed from your Facebook group page. And for everyone listening, there is a Facebook group page. The, I think it's, did y'all change it from the unsolved to just, no. Okay. So it's, no, I'm leaving it unsolved. (laughs) So it's the unsolved murder of Rebecca Gould. We'll put a link on our social medias to that as well. And you can scroll all the way back to when way before. So you can see everything Jennifer and I had the opportunity to have dinner together when we were in Arkansas the weekend before. Look, <laughs> we're gonna keep yeah. rubbing it in. <laughs> Someone had to work. Someone had to. I know, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. I missed it. Someone I really had to. Wish you should be because it was fun. <laughs> Someone had to train everyone else and couldn't get out of it. So, but we were talking when we had dinner about how for as much innocence that is proclaimed on Casey, there sure is a lot of chatter from that family and Casey's inner circle. And Mm -hmm. I was talking to Jennifer off air. I had just finished up the still missing Morgan thing on Hulu. And one thing that I noticed on that was, you know, they zeroed in on uh, Morgan's dad real quick because he just, he let Colleen, take front and center. And then he was kind of her emotional support and they interviewed him. And he talked about how he went through the whole gamut of emotions with the press. And finally he just got to where he didn't care. 
they could say what they wanted to. And they eventually cleared him. And I guess that's my thing with the McCulloughs. They're so quick to threaten lawsuit, threaten defamation, all of that stuff. When you just ask a simple question. Yeah, exactly. And then touching on what you talked about that I still have this, I, I sent it to coach earlier today. I didn't even, I don't even remember us having it. That's how far back it is. But there was some inconsistent statements that Casey had made. And we'll Mm -hmm. start with that because I wanted to, this kind of ties into how the Dateline episode opened up. Casey said at the beginning that he did not return home from work on September 20th, 2004 until he traveled to the trailer with Charlie Melton on the 21st. So, we know that that's not true now because right. he had, he had stated that he had gone home. He had gone to work. Something happened at work that he needed to go home and get another shirt. Mm-hmm. And then he came back to work and that's where Charlie Melton now sheriff of Izzard County sees him and says, Hey, you need to follow me to your, your um, trailer. So that, go, that goes back into what you said about moving the bed. Now, Looking back, we now have to believe that Casey went into that trailer. The piano leg is missing. Mm-hmm. There's blood in the, I get what do you call that? The little bleach container. The bleach dispenser part yeah. of the washing machine and under the lid. Which And he said he opened the washing machine. And that there, there was bloody bedding in there. The mattress and had blood on it because it had been stripped. And then there was a bloody pillow, if I'm not mistaken, yes. underneath the bed. Yeah, sticking out, though, like in yes. plain view. Yeah, in plain yeah. sight. And then yeah. in the Dateline episode, Charlie Melton tells Dateline that he's the one that flips the mattress and examines the washing machine when he goes in with Casey. Yeah. But they never ask him what Casey's reaction was. He just, it was just, well, when I went in, I saw this. Yeah, exactly. And why didn't, again, why wouldn't Casey tell Charlie, like, wait, my bed's in a different place than when I left the other day. Right. I and mean, come on. I, well, the other thing that I don't understand is there's that washcloth or less, less since me and coach are from the South, that wash rag is laying right there <laughs> next to the end table. And uh, that'll come into play later. And, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but Charlie did state at the very beginning of the Dateline episode that he had a gut feeling Casey was involved, but he didn't. It just seemed to me like that was a passing comment. He didn't really follow up on it. Yeah, that really surprised me because there's nothing in his initial reports or anything that where he felt or that indicated that he felt that way about Casey. And I still suspect they knew each other personally to some level, probably not like best friends or anything like that. But Charlie himself says in his report, and he said it on Dateline, when he was dispatched to go do the welfare check, he drove over to Sonic and then he saw Casey driving out. Now, first I was like, well, how do you know he worked at Sonic? Okay, well, Rebecca's mom or somebody at the police station that knew Casey could have told him. Um, so that's fair. But how how would he know it's Casey that's driving out of the parking lot? Correct, I because mean, supposedly you don't he didn't know who have that he, truck. what he looks like. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, he had a truck, but if you don't know what this you don't know this guy or person and you don't know what they look like, how do you know that was him driving out? And so Casey was driving out and Melton followed him over to his buddy's apartment because Casey's boss told him he had to get someone to cover his shift um, so he could go look for Rebecca. 
so anyways, I, I don't know what the deal is there. But and then and then Casey's been so adamant that they they did not know each other, which why does it even matter? I don't know why that's important to him, but it is. Well, and so. then the other inconsistency with him is he informs his two friends, Philip and Laren, that mm-hmm. Rebecca was supposed to have picked him up at Sonic on Monday afternoon, but had not shown up. But yeah. then he wrote publicly that he knew, I'm sorry, he didn't write it. His sister-in-law wrote that he knew Rebecca was supposed to have returned to Fayetteville. So that's why he went out with his friends. So there's mm-hmm. another glaring inconsistency. Yep. Yeah, the story has changed multiple times. And then another one that I picked up on in the Dateline episode was Casey tells Charlie Melton that Rebecca was going to go back to his house, take a nap, pick him up from work at four, and then head back to Fayetteville. Well, that's not the the original story because she was going to go back, gather her things, pick her sister up, correct, and Mm -hmm. then head back to... Yeah, yeah. I just thought, man... just the little knowledge I have of the case, that was a huge glaring. And that's the first 10 minutes of Dateline. And Mm -hmm. it's an hour and 30 minutes long. Yeah. Look, I mean, everyone, not everyone. uh, There's a handful of people that are still upset with me and George and Catherine and others because we continue talking about this stuff, but it's like, don't be mad at me. Ask Casey why he changed his story all these times. We're just pointing it out and discussing it. I'm not putting words in his mouth. He said those words. He put himself in this position. So, Well, the other thing is he's not willing to come forward and clear the air. He even had the opportunity with Dateline, and he released that canned statement. Yeah. I will say some of our both follow some of the followers of both of this our podcast and your Facebook page got on Twitter and absolutely took Dateline to the shed. I was like, yes. But anyway. Oh, did they really? Yes, I didn't they even did. check Twitter. <laughs> I, I don't know why I thought about it, but I did. That's and funny. so I was like, yes. And there's one guy on there when you see that if you get on there, you'll be like, oh, yeah, I know who that is. And he would definitely do that. It's not me. Oh, Let me just say that. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you. <laughs> yes, right. Because, yeah, I'm not trying to roast an innocent person, but. You brought it on yourself, you know, and they played this on Dateline. He said she was the most beautiful creature I'd ever seen. Well, but and then you don't go searching for her when she's missing or enlist the help of your friends to search for her or even lift a finger or go Come to on. her funeral or go. Yep. Yep. Yeah, contact her father at some point through the years or her family. I mean, nah. And he's the one that throws shade on the previous boyfriend that had mm-hmm. gotten the lady pregnant. I think her name mm-hmm. was. Was her Jennifer. Name? Jennifer, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't want to speak ill of the dead, and I'm, I, and that's not what I'm saying. But Rebecca's sister Tiffany and her—is it her half sister or stepsister Angela—was on Dateline. I don't. I didn't even know who Angela was before. I mean, I knew I had heard the name, but I was when I saw her face, I said, "Who is that?" I don't even know who this is, which tells me they had no bearing on how this case went. Right, and then. In their interview, Tiffany states that she thinks that Rebecca's gone partying without her car and her purse. And I'm like, that just doesn't make sense. That's not. And it, dog and phone. And yeah, I mean. And then they're the two that state that there was a love letter from Justin in Rebecca's purse saying that he loved her and he wanted to be with her. And they had been lover or they had loved each other since high school. And that was that the first was I'd heard sh- of that. Yep. Same for everybody else. Uh, that's not in the case file. I have no idea what they're talking about or where that came from or if it's even true. 
But I would think if that had been found, it should definitely be in the case file. I mean, they did take a lot of photos inside that trailer and the contents of her stuff. So I I don't know what they're talking about. It's not in anybody's report. And it's not in y'all hadn't you and George now have a hold of the case file itself. And it wasn't in there either. Was it? There's no copy of any letter from him. There's nothing in any of the law enforcement or CSI's reports about finding this letter. So I I don't know where that came from. I'd love to know what it said, um, but I'm not going to take their word for it until I see something more solid from the ASP on it. And I don't have it. Right. And now we get to our mutual favorite, Mr. Dennis Simons. Egotistical just barely scratches the surface on this one. He's front and center in the Dateline episode. And one thing that I picked up on with him was he stated that the cashier at the Possum Trot called and said that she saw Rebecca in her little car. And the, this is his words because I rewound it twice. Quote, time frame matches even though they couldn't get an exact time on the purchase of the breakfast sandwich and the thing. And I'm like, well, how does the time frame match if the time yeah. can't be exact? And I know we spoke was, about the receipt. Yep. Which does have a specific time on it, 8.03 a.m. So I don't know why he's saying there's no specific, but I think it's because we've called them out on this after getting the case file. Because, so here's a story for people that don't know. According to the case file, so they never collected Casey's time card from Sonic. I have no idea how that got overlooked. So all we have is the two other people that were working at Sonic that morning, their statement to go off. And so grain of salt, obviously, with eyewitness accounts, because they're usually not totally reliable. But both of them said it was 8.08 when he showed up, which is a really specific detail. So when two people have the same specific detail, I tend to put a little more uh, weight on it. But if Rebecca doesn't drop him off until 8.08, how is she at the possum chop by herself at 8.03, five minutes early? She'd have to time travel back in time or something. It's, And she wasn't with anybody at the possum trot, according to the cashier. She was alone. Yeah, and for those um, that don't remember, the cashier stated that she came in, got a breakfast sandwich, and made and got the cappuccino from the cappuccino machine where it takes forever for the hot water to heat itself, and then it dumps into the cup. She purchased it, then walked out, and then the cashier walked out behind her to get a paper, and that's why she yeah. knew it was her. I'll just correct you on one thing. In the cashier's original statement, she said Rebecca only bought a coffee or ca- oh. some kind of coffee drink, no sandwich. Oh, that's and right. She, that's right. That's right. That's yeah, right. Yeah, and she felt we've. She's been so helpful through the the years and so friendly, and you know she feels bad because she says she can't trust her memory and she's just not a hundred percent sure. But she was explaining back then, like the breakfast, any sandwiches were behind the cash register. Like the cashier had to pull them out of the heater for you. And bag them up or whatever. And she's feel certain that she didn't do that. She just had the coffee. So since we're on it, we can discuss the working theory is that when CSI showed up to process the trailer, that it's not unheard of for either the law enforcement agency that is working, which would have, was it, would it have been ASP at that time? Yeah. Yeah. So it would not have been out of the question for Izzard County sheriffs to show up with a group of CSI people there with breakfast items and coffee. Yeah. And for someone to grab it. And the working theory is that coffee and the breakfast sandwich that they find in the microwave 
could easily be explained away from just a technician grabbed his, it got cold, stuck it in there, and then forgot about it. Yeah, or saved it for later and forgot it. Yeah. That's just one theory that I have. I mean, there's there's several ways to explain it, but it's I don't think I don't think it's in good faith to just assume it belonged to Rebecca. There was no fingerprints. I mean, I don't know what they did in terms of fingerprinting on it or could they, but there was nothing that actually linked it to her other than this receipt. But again, the problem is that time frame. She couldn't have been at the store at eight oh three. If she dropped him it would be more like yeah, if she dropped him at eight oh eight and then it's a couple miles back to that gas station. So figure eight thirteen or something she'd be pulling in. And I get cash register could be off several minutes, I guess, but it's just not a solid piece of evidence. No, and Coach and I have talked about this before on our podcast with other cases. There's receipts in my truck right now. If something happened to me, you would be like, why was he at Tractor Supply? And why did he spend $12 (laughs) on cedar shavings? (laughs) It's the middle of uh, summer. So, (laughs) you know, you see what I'm saying? I mean, that's, it's what's crazy is when something happens, everything's put under the microscope and what, and there's these red herring little items that are basically irrelevant to the case, but people just Mm -hmm. latch on to them. They sure did. And they took that receipt as gospel that she was alive Monday morning. And that I think was a huge, huge, I don't want to say failure, but oversight, I guess, on behalf of investigators to, there's nothing, no other proof of life. And that's not even proof of life. And yet, even today, they're like, yep, she bought that sandwich. She was alive. And it's like, you can't think like that. You have to be more open-minded. Correct. And then Simons again on the episode says that they start immediately looking at other family members and that he talks to Casey's dad, Claude, and eliminated him due to the fact that he was training a driver and was Mm -hmm. in Kentucky, I think is what Simon said in the episode. And then he just drops this little nugget that Billy William himself was questioned by Texas authorities, but nothing ever came of it. Which <laughs> there's a reason for that, <laughs> right? Which what we know now is we'll get into his time frame during the confession, but he was in the area. Him and his mother were going to move. The family was going to move back to Texas. There's a whole kerfuffle with renting a U-Haul truck and leaving and taking his brother out of school and why they couldn't have. If you're going to hang on, if you're so diligent in your investigation that you figure this receipt out, this U-Haul truck and this, all this other stuff with this family member just kind of slips by you, is hard to believe. I know. But so much slipped by them. <laughs> yes, there's a lot. I mean, yeah, it's so many of those early interviews with Casey and stuff like there, there's just so many glaring red flags and changes in statements and stuff, and they just ignored it. But uh, and in fact, Casey took a polygraph that the day Rebecca went missing, he failed. They never even asked him about it. Nope. I'm like, why did you even give him one? Well, and my, it, it's a tool you need to use during your interview. One of the things I think originally Simon said that Casey couldn't have done it because the time frame just didn't match because he had eyewitness statements that he was at work. Yeah. And I'm like, but and, and to just reiterate your point, but you didn't believe it enough that you gave him a polygraph. But yet, yeah, I could see you clearing him if the polygraph came back. He wasn't, or he told the truth. But now mm-hmm. you have something contradicting that. Why don't you press him just if they just pressed a little bit harder? I know. Yeah, yeah. 
But they, yeah, their questioning technique was horrible. <laughs> Simons goes on in the in in the Dateline interview to tell that basically he put JB Yates through the ringer back then, and mm-hmm. they claim that and like Coach will you know backs me up on this all the time. JB had sold Rebecca some pot previously and owed him $20. And so the working theory in Simon's mind was that JB got so pissed off at 20 bucks that he killed her. Ridiculous. $20 caused the murder. (laughs) No. (laughs) Are you serious? $20. And JB even says on the dateline, he goes, look, guys, I've had people that owed me 10 times that amount and I didn't murder them. You don't murder your customers. And why would you then clean up the boyfriend's house? <laughs> right. Why not pin exactly. it? Why not pin it on the boyfriend? Exactly. Right. Just leave her where she is and to frame Casey. Yeah. And then Simon's goes on this. This is where I have a huge problem, and he gets tunnel vision. He has blinders on, and he zeroes in on Chris Cantrell and says, "Now this is according to Simon's that Chris had bragged to a lot of people that he was involved in Rebecca's murder." And he gets hung up on this hearsay in the Dateline episode that Cantrell had told someone who told someone, you know, fourth Mm -hmm. generation information that he was glad his car had been demolished because they would have found body parts in the trunk. Yeah, I can't remember where that hearsay came from, but there was something said to that effect. Well, I don't know if Chris said that, but there was something to that effect reported to Dennis. And again, he's just operating off hearsay and absolutely nothing else. And my argument would be, okay, so you, you think Chris's confession is valid, but why not Casey's later confession to his buddy, which contained details only the killer could know. Like you're, you've got a double standard going on here. Well, and, and I'll tell listeners this, this case, Bob, 50%, I bet is just about Chris. Yeah. It's that's what I was going to say. Chris through the years. There's not nobody else. Well, he's mm-hmm. even in the episode, he says, after he just, they spend like five minutes of him talking about Chris and Chris and Chris and Chris and Chris. And then he says, quote, no, I know Cantrell didn't have a motive or access to Casey's house. That's why I ruled him out. And I'm like, you didn't rule him out. He never ruled him out. You hounded never. him. Hounded yes. him. Yes. <sighs> he said he knew he murdered Rebecca, and if he couldn't get him for the murder, he'd put him in prison on the installment plan. And we have that in writing. Um, or it's a transcript from a conversation he had with somebody. Well, he follows um, up that genius quote with, I know all the evidence in the trailer excludes J.B. Jennifer, Chris Cantrell. And I'm like, then why did you, you yeah. wasted all those years and all yep. those resources and the effort chasing this poor boy? Yeah but did not adequately look into the people who we know were in proximity to the victim within, you know, the day or two prior to her death, meaning the Millers. Yes. And then we, we kind of spoke about this while coach was trying to get into the the meeting with our lovely account that we have that I was telling Jennifer, you know, it's always (laughs) some kind of gremlin in the machine when we try to record. So I'll put this out here and then you can follow up with how, Y'all were excluded in the episode. They use Catherine Townsend's voice Mm -hmm. and her tagline from this is Catherine Townsend and this is Helen gone. Mm -hmm. And that's the only time that she's mentioned 
Yeah, it's the only time she's mentioned. Then they follow that up with a half a dozen podcasts cover Rebecca's case, and then they refer to Catherine by just the podcaster. Yeah. And it was just a blip on the radar. Mm -hmm. And so you can fill our listeners in on what really... I mean, yeah, I could write a book. Well, we are going to write a book, actually. (laughs) And guess what, Dateline? You're going to be one of the chapters. Um, All right, so here's the... this, This is our understanding. So when Dateline... And by the way... Me, George, and Catherine have been talking to producers at Dateline for over four years. So for those of you who got your 15 minutes of fame, you're welcome. So, and the reason Dateline wouldn't cover it four or three years ago is because there was no arrest, there was no adjudication, you know, and they don't really cover cases that are still unsolved. So we had to sit and wait. And then, of course, as soon as, not as soon as, but, you know, soon after Williams arrested, we reached back out and they're like, well, let's see how it goes. Like, let's see how we please. And if it's going to go to trial, because if it goes to trial and we want to wait and get footage from the trial and on and on and on, fine. And so they finally decide after the conviction to do the episode. And I spoke with the producer at length. She was actually lovely. Um, we taught, we mostly, she was so fascinated about the forensics and like how I analyzed the injuries and the videos I'd made and like the behavioral analysis. And we had a great conversation and that was the one and only time we spoke. Uh, George actually went and had dinner with her and Dr. Gould. And I know Catherine spoke with her and then we all got excluded and we suspected it was at the request of or demand of the ASP, but we didn't find out for sure until a producer from 48 hours contacted the ASP district attorney, Eric Hance and Charlie Melton and the sheriff's department of Izzard County, who all told 48 hours, we will not agree to be interviewed or cooperate with you. If you include Catherine, George or Jen on your show. The producer told all of them, uh, you are not going to dictate who I interview and not interview. And that's a First Amendment violation. Sweet. <laughs> so thank you to you. <laughs> you know who you are, but I'm not going to out that producer. So that's what happened. And that's why none of us were on a Dateline obliged. They lied to Dr. Gould's face when he asked them if that's what had happened. They said no. And but there's no other re- there's absolutely no other legitimate reason to not include us. Well, I mean, the, we lured the killer onto a Facebook group and he got him talking. Correct. I mean, we didn't know he was the killer at the time, but how do you not want that part of the story? And they just glossed over that. But I don't even think they mentioned that. They said that he had interjected himself in a Facebook group. I don't even think oh, they okay. had the, I don't think they had the correct Facebook page up there. They Ours get it, did get put up at one point. It, okay. I didn't I know if that a, was it or not. The, Families want the, the family. Their one was shown as well, oh, okay. but he wasn't in theirs. No, no, he didn't care about them because they weren't stressing them out. And the thing is, we've talked, you know, and I think for those listeners that were at the True Crime Fest in Northwest Arkansas, what people don't understand is, and we mentioned this on our previous episode that Coach and I did. Podcasters, unless you are Joe Rogan or True Crime Garage, you're not paying the bills by doing this. This no. is this is something that you is a hobby for you, and you're trying to get these stories out there. That's what we do weekly is just try to bring light to different cases. Mm-hmm. I know you and George take on a case and y'all see it to the end. But the thing that I don't understand is why would you, especially knowing that crowdsourcing through podcasting and their listeners have brought evidence to the table in numerous cases. Why would you not have, 
Catherine or you or George on there. And like you said earlier, it may have been off air, but George, they interviewed Simons and said, yeah, her body was discovered right here. They could have clearly interviewed George, who was a beginning reporter at the time covering Rebecca's case. Yeah. He could, I mean, you didn't need Charlie Melton on them or Simons, whoever it was, showing them where she was found. Right. It'd be way more interesting to hear the journalist's point of view, who was a cub journalist on his first murder case, talking about his memories. That's way more interesting. Yes. Yes. Well, <laughs> circling back to so, Simons, so we kind of touched, you touched on this. Casey had started working later in life. He was doing cell tower. Was that right? Yeah. Some kind of cell phone tower stuff on the road. Mm-hmm. And I think this guy contacts Catherine. Yes. Okay. And so yeah. Catherine releases this guy's story and he, she changes his voice. Mm-hmm. And he states that Casey gets a little beer in him, a little liquor in him, and he starts confessing and he lets go some of the details that only someone present at yeah. the time of the murder, would have known. They asked Simons about it, and he says that he didn't take it. This is what he said. Uh, yeah. Quote, I don't take his co-worker's confession very seriously because it had occurred eight years previous, and why didn't you come forward then? Well, the guy may not have ever heard of Rebecca Gould. Right. <laughs> There's all kinds of people who don't come forward for decades when they've heard a confession. Right, and there's a lot of times that if Casey's working for a company and he shows up, that that guy could have been from, you know, the West Coast and he was on that yeah. cell tower work. So I I thought that was kind of interesting. And then Simons dismisses it even further and says, oh, the reason this guy came forward is because Casey had slept with his ex-wife. That is not a fact. No, it it's never not. been proven. It has never been proven. I just I was so. I was just flabbergasted by the whole thing. So, yeah. you know, Simon's just, that's a dead end. We're not going, we're not going to yeah. talk about this, blah, 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 But he just is killing me. Um, and here, I just want to say one thing about that guy's story or recollection. That's the most important point that when, as soon, as soon as I heard it, I knew it was true, but he said, Casey told him, him and Rebecca got into it. And then Rebecca turned to walk away. And I said, there is nobody on the face of the planet that knew that back in 2018. Because I didn't do my injury analysis until 2019, I guess it was. And then I have a video up on YouTube that I did like early 2020 explaining that the only way we've been able to recreate her injuries is if she's upright and she had her back turned to the person that swung and then she turned her head to the right into the first swing. It's literally, we've spent countless hours on this. And so the prevailing theory for years was that she'd been in bed asleep when she was hit. We can't, I have a second video on that showing how that's impossible. And this guy, there's no way he could have come up with that on his own. No. And so Casey had to have tell him. And the only way Casey would know is because he witnessed it or was told or did it or something like that. So Correct. Now, we kind of glossed over it, but we'll let's get into it a little bit more. And so y'all have got your Facebook group page. We had joined by this time, unbeknownst to us. And we're tr- I was trying to keep up with it. But William Miller, who is Casey's cousin... Mm-hmm. He joins and then he starts interjecting himself into the discussion on the the pages, yeah. but he goes one step further and he starts privately messaging you and George, correct? Yes, correct. Yeah. In January of 2020 is when I got the first private message from him. Yeah. And, and we're not talking about just 
a couple or 10 or 20. We're no. talking, I think you said at one time you told me that it was excess of like something like 600, 700. Uh, there might be that many messages. I don't think it's that many. I downloaded the whole message traffic the day after his arrest and sent it to Mike McNeil. And I, I want to say it was close to 100 pages um, if you printed it out. So I don't know how many messages that maybe that does translate into 600. I don't know. Well, I'm, I mean, I'm thinking between the, yeah, between the two of you, yeah. it, it may get up that, that yeah. high, but yeah, a hundred yeah. pages, a hundred page transcript is, is a lot of messages. Yeah. And that's not yeah. even, that's just your interaction. That's not George's. Yeah. Is it? yeah. Yeah. George had not a lot, just like a few exchanges, but Kim Phillip did too. Kim yeah. Phillip and William Miller actually had a friend in common. It's really bizarre. And he, he messaged her about that when that person died. <laughs> God. so but yeah um we exchanged many messages when he joined the group i knew who he was i knew he was casey's cousin i had no idea he should be a suspect because i thought well i knew he had been living in texas at the time of the murder with a fiance and a kid but i didn't know he'd been in arkansas that weekend so it, it was many months before george and i before we got a tip that william miller had been in town now the asp had known that all along that would have been really nice to know because I would, my exchanges with him would have been so much different. <laughs> right. And then going back to Simon's having blinders on, that kind of just reiterates our point. Because if ASP knew that William Miller was in, why did they send Texas authorities? Why didn't you just travel down there and say, hey, look, I know, I know that you, your mom went and got your brother out of school. Y'all went to Missouri to get this U-Haul and you had to wait mm -hmm. a day and then you loaded everything up and moved out of town. So let's, let's yeah. talk about that. Yeah. Exactly. And something that came to light in recent months is that the officer in Texas who was sent to interview them actually knew William personally and had been had played football with him in high school and they partied together. Oh, wow. So, of course, that's going to change your viewpoint on this guy that you're interviewing and you're not going to want to think he's a suspect. So I guarantee that was one big detriment to that interview. And, the, and then the other one is that they didn't separate William and his mom and brother. They just, they went to the house. The officer went to their house and interviewed all three of them together, which you never do. No, no. I mean, heck we, we are school teachers and we know that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Come on. Haven't you guys, haven't they watched CSI or That's something right. back then? God dang. So in Dateline, and this is where I just had to pause it and get up and do something. Simon's the bleeding heart. You know, he's always a champion for Rebecca's case. Quote, reluctantly handed over Rebecca's no. case because he did not want it left unresolved. And I found that laughable. It was not no, that really he handed laughed. it was not that he handed <laughs> very, it off. No. Very laughable. He I think I took a huge gulp of wine when I heard that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had uh, a <laughs> I had just, I was like, I need some more coffee after that. So yeah. he goes on and plays the poor pitiful detective at the end of his career. And in 29 years, Rebecca's case is the only unsolved case that I have. And I'm like, well, there's no a, that's a red flag right there. If that's the only one that's unsolved. Yeah. Yeah. So and I'm not going to get in the nitty gritty on his cases, but I've had several, me and George have had several people reach out with knowledge of loved ones or friends or whatever that died and the case was clearly mishandled. And there's at least two I can think of where uh, he ruled it a suicide on the spot Fami like before the autopsy is even done. <laughs> and uh, under very suspicious circumstances, I'm like, 
well, maybe that's how you close all your cases because anyways, I don't want, I don't make accusations that I don't know are unfounded, but he did not reluctantly hand over the, well, he may have reluctantly handed it over. Actually, that part might be true, but he was forced to hand it over. And we have the document that shows it being reassigned to Mike McNeil in January, 2020. So, and I will say Mike McNeil's segment on the Dateline episode, you can tell he, and he said mm-hmm. they had to take a break yep. and he came back and he said, when he composed himself, he said, these types of cases are the last thing you think about when you go to bed. And the first thing you think about when you get up in the morning. Mm-hmm. And he felt like that he, when he let, I'm kind of jumping the shark here, but he let William talk to his mother before he got a confession. Mm-hmm. He felt like that he had dropped the ball and then he was not going to be able to live with himself if that had turned out, but it didn't. Thank God. Yeah. So McNeil gets assigned the case and I will say from what I had read and talking with you, he does look at it from a fresh set of eyes and he starts back at square one and he goes to Casey Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then he works his way through all of Casey's brothers. Mm -hmm. And what I found odd was that when Mike interviews his brother, Chris, Chris implicates his own brother, Corey. Kind of, right? Yeah. Like by omission. <laughs> and I thought that was the oddest thing. I was like, this should, that's the dynamic of this family, to be honest yeah. with you. Yeah. It doesn't he, matter. When, I was going to say for listeners, what happened was Mike says, so where was your brother Corey on the day she was murdered? And there's a huge long pause. And then he goes, I don't know. Kind of like, I'm just as surprised as you are. Yeah. Like, we've never talked about this as a family in 16 years. I mean, give me a break. Yeah. And Corey, my God, what a... Prick. Prick, prick, prick. There's a word. Yes. A lot of listeners know I like this little story. You guys know. This just happened yesterday. Uh, Corey's ex claimed that Dateline never reached out to him for comment or to ask for an interview. And so knowing we were going to meet with 48 hours, I sent him a, I thought it was a very kind message. I was just saying, we're having this meeting. Megan said to reach out to you. And I just want to extend the opportunity. If you want to do an interview with them, I can let them know that you're willing or something like that. Right. And I said, have a nice weekend. And I get this message back about, I'm going to take legal action and, and all this stuff. And so Wow. I let him know I would welcome legal action um, because that way we can get him and the rest of his family deposed in court. And so. Yeah. Crickets from that, that point. Was, that was the, he, he did, he did say this is harassment, which it's not, that is not harassment at all, Corey. You might want to check the legal threshold, but yeah. I let it go. So. She was just trying to give you an opportunity and your family an yeah. opportunity to state publicly. And yeah, like Casey, you decided to act a fool, but. Anyway, going back to Mike McNeil, he did, I thought he did a great job of just zeroing Mm -hmm. in. And then he said that he knew in his gut that it had to be a family member of Casey. Mm -hmm. And that's when William is kind of brought to his attention. Now, behind the scenes, did he kind of zone in on William before you gave him the transcripts or was it after or was it kind of they kind of coincided at the same okay the transcript was after the arrest um beforehand this is still foggy to us but so george and i got a tip about william being in town about six weeks prior to his arrest we 
made sure that tipster went to Mike McNeil. It appears Mike was already sort of honing in on William at that point, but I don't know for sure because Mike isn't going to reveal that to us. But it, it wasn't, and, and we've never, you know, people accuse us like, oh, they say they solved it and they got the, the tip. And I'm like, no, we got a tip and we sent the person to Mike McNeil, whether it helped or not. I don't know, but we did the right thing. But it certainly sent us in a different direction for those six weeks and changed the whole trajectory of what we were doing. Yeah, because um, then y'all can go back and then you can see how he's interjected himself. Some of the things yeah. he said that you kind of didn't think about, mm-hmm. it kind of starts making more sense. But, I mean, and we debated because since I had a dialogue with the guy, I was like, should I, I just it? out him? Should I just say, look, I know you're Casey's cousin. I know you're in town that weekend. What the hell happened? You know, but I'm glad I, I mean, I don't know how that would have turned out, but I'm glad I didn't because he could have, that could have shut him down. And then he never went and talked to Mike. Right. Or he could have gave up the goods to me. I don't know. We'll never know. No, the good, but, the good news is we do get, some closure in this because in October of 2020 McNeil calls. Well, actually before that he puts a, I want to say APB, but that's not right. But he, he basically flags William Miller's mm-hmm. passport. Correct. And so if he comes back in the United States, he's going to be notified immediately. Yes. Uh, so he knows he's back in the country and then yes. he calls Linda, his William's mother and asks, when will William be coming back in? Because the holidays were approaching and she was like, Oh now he won't be back into November. And he said, he goes, look, I knew he was in town. I knew he was in the U S yeah, he already knew. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then she calls him back. It didn't say a time frame, but it's, it seemed like within, I'd say a couple of days. Yeah. Tells him that her and William would like to meet with him on November the 7th. Mm-hmm. So he and Jeremy and Jeremy. And so they all fly out. Or not all fly out, but McNeil flies out mm-hmm. and uh, he gets the interview room. And then that whole polygraph thing he plays. I mean, those were, those were some cool hand Luke moves that he had with the polygraph. Mm-hmm. He gets William, for those of you that don't know in the interview and in the interviews out there on, they do show it on Dateline. He gets William to admit that he would, I think McNeil's, saying was if you're ever back in arkansas you wouldn't mind doing a polygraph would you and he's like no 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 i'd I'd do a polygraph and so then he waits a couple of minutes he's like hey i mean you said you'd do a polygraph let me see if they've got one here and so now he's got him (laughs) yeah what's he gonna say right and so he's already got a guy in the detective room and so he he fakes a phone call and hey can do y'all have a polygrapher here? And oh, okay, thirty minutes is that all right, William? And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so then he starts with his whole demeanor changes. Yeah. From that point forward, you can see him start to fidget. You can see him looking up. He's shifting his weight, and then he starts with, you know, I've got anxiety. I've got real bad anxiety. Yeah. And, Medication, blood pressure. Yeah, he's yeah. he's throwing out every. And the thing about those things, it doesn't matter because you have high blood pressure all the time. So it, every person has their own baseline on a polygraph is what we call it. So it doesn't matter if you're on medication or you have high blood pressure, high heart rate. That's just your baseline. So, <laughs> And he starts speaking. He just starts spouting off these questions as he's saying that he's got anxiety and blood pressure and he's taking medicine. And he asked, am I a suspect? And then he asked, polygraphs aren't admissible in court, are they? And then McNeil kind of was like, no, man, they, the, 
the defense and the prosecution would have to admit that or agree that they could be admitted. And it's just really, it's weird. And, you know, then he, then he asked him, this is, why would, he said, why would your DNA be in Casey's trailer? Mm-hmm. And that's when William comes up with this. Well, K, all of Casey's furniture is my mom's. So, I mean, my DNA would be on everything, including the bedding. Yeah. And then he's the one that says my DNA yep. would be included on the bedding. And yes. I was like, are you, you just hung yourself, dude. Yeah, I know. And what a stupid excuse. Like your mom who lived 12 hours away gave all this for like they came down and got all this for, like Claude doesn't make enough money to buy some furniture. I don't even understand like why that would happen. So, yeah, I, I just, <clears throat> he just spouts off after that. I didn't kill her. And McNeil's like, okay, all right. No, I'm sorry. He tells, I think he tells the polygrapher, I didn't kill her. And the guy was like, okay, that's not, you know, whatever. And then yeah. <laughs> they do the polygraph. The polygrapher tells him, look, dude, you failed. And mm-hmm. then McNeil comes back in. And that's when you get, I guess, his last ditch effort, the hunting story. He had gone turkey hunting that morning. I don't know if he said what kind of animal. Yeah, but, but he supposedly. I think he was trying to say deer. But. He, what people don't understand is before we get this admission from William, he has been on record stating that he took his younger brother to school that morning. Mm-hmm. For those of you that are not or haven't been in school in a while, they usually start school anywhere between 745 and 830. In October in Arkansas, you've got about an hour before you can, you have to leave if you're hunting anything between daylight and the time you've got to get someone to school. Mm-hmm. Less than that, probably. So then he changes it from, while I was hunting, I saw two white males jump over the fence and leave out the back door. So I jumped over the fence and I went in and I was like, come on, man. And Mike's like, you were in the trailer. Yeah. Yeah. And you, I mean, you see it all change right there. He takes that huge deep breath and sighs it out. And then everything changes. Is that when he looks at him and goes, I want to go talk to my mom. Pretty much. Yeah. I actually think the big sigh is before he tries to tell this stupid story about seeing two guys in the backyard, but then it, it turns into, I just want to talk to my mom and then I'll, and then I'll tell you everything you want to know, which I don't like that phrase. Um, but you know, and like Mike said on Dateline, it was a huge gamble, but I think he had read him well enough. He'd spent enough time with him that it it, it appeared that William was going to be able to be willing to come back in the room. So, but it was a huge gamble to let him leave. Yeah, it was. And I, I mean, and I don't it, know why his mom wasn't like, get the hell out of here. That was the other thing. And McNeil says, and that's when McNeil has to walk away for a second because it really, he, I think the gravity of the situation, knowing that that case could have went unsolved yeah. for the remainder of the time. And it hinged on his decision to let him go talk to his mother. Mm-hmm. And they have video uh, surveillance video from the police station that, I will say that uh, McNeil was closer and he kind of leans in trying to figure out what Billy is whispering to Linda. Mm -hmm. And we never will know that because. No, but anyway, he does. He whispers something to his mother and he comes back in and confesses and tells McNeil. He's the only person that ever. He says, I'm you're the only person I've ever told this to. And I'm like, you're a lying sack of. Yeah. So, yeah, then supposedly, I know that Dateline chopped up the 
confession video. Yeah. And made it fit what they needed to. But it was kind of, if you watch it, it's almost that McNeil kind of led him to the point. And that's not the case. McNeil let him talk because William loves to talk now. Mm-hmm. Um, he did tell him that he, the ruse to get in the trailer was that he had parked down the road and walked up and said that he needed to use the phone. Yeah. And this is where I think both of us would call bullshit is she opens the trailer door, says, here's the phone. And then she turns and walks away from him and goes to the bedroom. He says that he's pacing back and forth. And I think this is where he tells McNeil, he's got some kind of deep dark entity in yeah. him or something. Yeah. And so he's something to that effect. Yeah. He <clears throat> struggles fighting this feeling. And in his pacing, the piano leg falls off and he just picks it up, hits her twice because this thing. And then she was a His story was she was laying down and asleep. He hit her twice and he just went in and killed her. And when he realized that she wasn't dead, he used a tie to strangle her. Yeah. And, and I'm like, well, none of that, the hitting twice fits, but that's the only thing that fits. Yeah. Well, a strangulation may her hyoid bone bro- was broken or separated in three parts. The coroner said, the cartilage that holds the three parts together could have decomposed. I don't believe that. Not over six days. I think that's just where the weakest point is. Points are in your hyoid bone, and that's where they usually break. But um, the fact that she has a broken hyoid bone, we never, ever, ever publicize that. Nobody knew that. And the fact he brings up strangulation, I'm like, dude, you you knew you knew what happened. Either you did, yeah. Either yeah. you did, or you witnessed yeah. the strangulation. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So now, so. Am I incorrect in thinking the Howie bone is that indicative of manual strangulation or is yeah. it? Okay. So it can break in either, but it's much more common in manual strangulation, which is where someone uses their hands to strangle the person rather than a ligature. Now it's not impossible with a ligature, but it's just not nearly as common. So I do kind of question that whole part, but I, I mean, there is a tie in the crime scene photos. There is a tie hanging on the wall, which seems really odd. I thought that was odd too. And I but thought, I wonder about it because I, they didn't collect it as evidence, but by the time she got strangled, she was very bloody. Profusely, yeah. And that's so what I'm I was like, thinking. I don't see any blood on that tie. So I think that may have just been a way to distance himself from that act mentally. And he tells McNeil mm. in his confession that he took the bet some of the bedding and put it in the washing machine. He took some of the other bedding and put it in a suitcase and he disposed of the suitcase, but he will tell him where the suitcase is at our general area where it's at. Mm-hmm. And so when McNeil gets back to Arkansas, him and the ASP go out to try to find this. And I thought it was creative on Dateline's point, but Dennis Simons just magically happens to be the one to find this suitcase right before he retires. According to the report, he was the one who spotted it. I, 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 there are coincidences that happen in cases as much as we don't want to believe it. But my bigger issue is uh, it's hard for me to believe that suitcase was in the elements for 16 years. It's just really difficult. Right, and there's photos of that on y'all's Facebook page. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And so our listeners can go to that. Again, we'll post a link to the the Facebook page where you can peruse all of the case file, all of the video, I mean, the pictures. Jennifer and George yep. have done a great job of painstakingly going through that case file and 
my hat's off to you because I had a, a gentleman give me a case file on a case he's doing. And I was like, this is 150 pages that I'm going to have to print out and put into piles. <laughs> I can't imagine a, that 16 year old case file, how thick it really was. And then y'all had to discern what goes with what, what evidence should be oh, put together. It was a disaster. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I just saw, I told, I, I told my wife when, I, when that case was, I was like, I'm at a kind of a cross mm. point here. What do I do? I just say, no, dude, I don't have the time to go yeah. through this. Or do, or do you, are you going to come home one yeah. day and I've got the entire living room with stacks of papers? So, but Ours yeah. Is, uh, Jesse printed it out at work and it's five, I think they're three inch binders. Oh. Um, I haven't had the patience to go through the paper version of it, but obviously I've gone through the digital version, which is about 2,000 pages that we got. But we know there's more things that are supposed to be in there that aren't, I don't know if we'll get those ever or what, but yeah, we've tried, I did my best in the Facebook group to post the documents in chronological order. But of course, as you know, in Facebook groups, like if someone comments on an older post, it brings it back to the top, but I can't do anything about that, So, right. Um, yeah. If you want to waste like a year of your life, <laughs> just go to our Facebook group and start reading. <laughs> I know. And I told you that I was, since I was out of school that I was going to start on it. And I did. And I was like, I don't know how they, it's such a monumental task. And you're just like, do I give up? But you you can't. I mean, you've got so, y'all have no. so much invested that you want to see this yeah. thing through. And a lot of yeah. people are like, well, what else are you looking for? Well, the thing is, there's still a lot of unanswered questions out there. Tons. Yes. And one thing in the Dateline episode that, that was kind of gl- glossed over was the family agreed to a plea deal and they interviewed Tiffany and, and her sister, but they didn't ask Dr. Gould about it. Was there a, did they approach Dr. Gould about a plea deal? Yes. A hundred percent. I have it on audio recording when he called me to talk about it. Um, so Dr. Gould is Rebecca's legal next of kin. He has ultimate say in any decision-making yeah. anything to do with her and her case. The sisters try to, you know, change a narrative to something else. But anyways, yeah, they consulted. They didn't really even consult him. Um, they did. I don't know. I, in Arkansas, there's a law that you do have to notify the fan, the next of kin that a plea deal has been put on the table. But they don't have, even if the, the family says, no, I don't want you to take the plea deal, they can do whatever they want. So they were going to, the DA was going to accept the plea deal. But he did give Dr. Gould a heads up. Um, and then on the last day, the last minute, he called and said, okay, we accepted the plea deal. Uh, they'll be hearing next week. Dr. Gold's like, when? Because I work and I have uh, p- people that want to come from out of state. Oh, I don't know. And so uh, I just had to buy a plane ticket and I flew out to Georgia's and hung around for a day. And then we, and then they called Dr. Gold and said, okay, be a court at 8 a.m. tomorrow. You know, it's like, it was so inconsiderate the way that they handled it with him. I, um, I, I agree. that. But, the other thing was, I know we had talked through Messenger. I was at a training that I could not get out of. And originally I was going to come in yep. late Friday and talk to y'all because that that's when the arraignment was going to be or the hearing was going to be. The, tr- the trial was supposed to be oh, two that's weeks right. later. Yeah. And, and so was I was just... going to come in and kind of mm-hmm. hang out with y'all that weekend mm-hmm. and go over what was going what, Y'all catching me up to speed. And mm-hmm. then I get that. So I think someone, I think our listener 
Chuck Ball sent me a link that said that he had taken a plea and I was like, shit. And so then I had messaged you and you were like, yeah, unfortunately he has. So now William's behavior since then has not gotten any less suspicious. He at the plea deal, Dr. Gould's allowed to read his impact statement Mm -hmm. and William. Now does William in court say it, or does he approach his attorney and the attorney approached Dr. Gould to let Dr. Gould know that William wants to talk to him and confess? Um, I guess Dr. Gould, he actually didn't tell us that he made this request, which is his prerogative. Um, but I guess he made a request to talk to William after the plea deal was signed and he was a convicted, you know, murderer of his daughter and William agreed to talk to him, but they went in a separate room. So, and then, but Dr. Gould became quickly frustrated with William because he changed his whole story. So he's just like, what am I supposed to believe? And he really, it's just, I don't know why this guy would do that because you're just re-traumatizing the father again. But yeah, we're still at a point where, and listeners probably don't know this, but they know it now. Like I've been communicating with William for about six months. There's some details that have come out that are very specific and that implicate others. And I do tend to believe some of those, but there's definitely a lot of things he's told me that I know aren't true. And I don't know if he's ever going to come 100% clean, but I think we're getting there. So I think he's holding on to a glimmer that maybe something in his sentence could be changed. But so, And that's the thing. In the plea deal, he, was, he got 40 years, so mm-hmm. more than likely uh, he will not see the light of day. Right. Um, yeah. After we had our weekend up there at the crime festival, you actually left headed to southeastern Arkansas. Yeah, Mariana. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And because William had gotten word that something about the dateline and basically said, I'm only going to talk to Jennifer. And so you had driven down there. And really, you know, we discussed it back then, too. Y'all, you and Jesse drive down there and he easily could have, by the time y'all got there said, nah, I'm not doing it. Yeah, sure. That's why I didn't tell basically anybody except Dr. Gould and George ahead of time that he had agreed to this meeting. Um, cause I just didn't want anything to spook him. I didn't want a family member to talk him out of it. Um, and obviously I just wanted to see if he would, you know, what details he would give me. So, but now that's, I mean, we're, we're still in contact. He's willing to meet again. So I feel comfortable talking a little bit about it. But again, uh, a lot of the details that he gave me about the murder, you know, we're we're, tra- we're working to get confirmation on those now. And for those who have been implicated, I don't, I mean, they probably know who they are, but I'm not going to tell them what he told me about them. So until we can figure out what we can do with this information. Right. And you had contacted McNeil and said, look, uh-huh. this guy's wanting to, to create open conversation. So if I get anything, I'm going to forward it to you. Yes. Yeah. And so George talked to Mike for a lengthy amount of time and he is not opposed to looking at what we can get. So he understands our point of view on that. We think others at a minimum, at least knew and helped cover it up. And he is not unwilling to look at evidence of that. And I'm not going to say possibly bring charges. I mean, that could be our hope if we have enough evidence, but at least we've got that dialogue going on too. And he didn't like 100% shut us down. 
And I think that's what's so refreshing about having him on the case is he mm -hmm. is approachable. He seems very mm -hmm. genuine on camera and everything that I've, I've read about him. Yeah. Um, the one story I will share is, and I don't think he ever wanted this to come to light. Oh, um, yeah. Because he kind of, it was just his, him kind of letting go. Y'all decided to go, was this after the plea deal or was this before y'all decided to go out there and clean up her grave? We went out there. So before we presented on Rebecca's case at CrimeCon two years ago, my husband and I went to Arkansas because, well, we needed to put, you know, we wanted our presentation to be absolutely perfect. It had to be a certain timeline. We wanted to interview Dr. Gould because he wasn't going to be able to travel to Texas and be on stage with us. So we wanted to get some video of him to include in the presentation, get his thoughts on the slides and all that stuff. Um, and so while I was out there two years ago, um, my husband and I and a couple of our wonderful local residents all went to the cemetery to visit her. And it still chokes me up, but we walk over to her headstone and one of the ladies, Karen, she goes, what's this? And there's like a rock with a paper under it. And we look at it and it's Mike McNeil's business card. And on the back he wrote, sorry, it took so long. And man, that I was like, that shows what kind of a guy he is. Right. And I think that's, I think you or Joe, it was either on your, your podcast or George podcast. Y'all had the audio of, and then you kind of go back and explain what, just what you'd said. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where the moment he stands up and just walks away at Dateline, he didn't care. And so the, the guy that's hosting Dateline yeah. like, what's going on? And I'm, <laughs> I'm like, well, Hey dude, yeah. this guy takes his job serious. Yeah. But the thing is, after that, I think that next January, me and my son were out there and found her oh yeah, her grave marker. Mm -hmm. And we had an hour to kill before we had dinner with another couple. And uh, we just, it's a, it is a, a fairly small graveyard. So yeah. we kind of parked up on the top and we start, we worked our way around the top and then we started working our way around the bottom, each side, the left and the right. My son had the opposite side and I'm the one that found her headstone first. And I just yelled, I was like, Hey, she's over here. And it wasn't windy. And I try not to choke up too. I know it's hard. <laughs> um, but I remember me touching her headstone and saying, hopefully you have some peace now. And about that time, there's a hand that touches my shoulder. And so my, I guess my son had seen me breaking down and he came over there and we had a moment, but, um, mm -hmm. but it, it was, it was just so surreal knowing Kim, um, yeah. that she had trusted us. Um, mm -hmm. I called you out of the blue. You didn't know who I was. You, you told me everything I had. I had referenced all of your articles. I called Catherine. Catherine was very opening too. we weren't boots on the ground in the case, but I just felt like we had a connection. And I told you while we were in Arkansas, yeah. she reminds me of a, a softball player that I lost to a car accident. And I think that's why it kind of hit home for me, you know, and they made, I will say this, they made a, a very good point in Dateline to kind of, portray her personality how spunky she was mm -hmm. didn't matter that she wasn't the oldest she was gonna crawl over people and um yeah exactly to get them she i thought that they conveyed her personality very well and i liked 
the old school photos that they showed. I was disappointed, though, because Dr. Gould gave him like copies of three albums worth of photos of him and all those girls when they were growing up. And I don't think they used any of them. No, they didn't. And they glossed over the fact that they all spent time in foster home. But somehow he couldn't get. Yeah, I mean, they they tried to allude that it was his fault. And and there's been some horrific comments on the. Dateline Facebook page, which I don't even want people to go read, but so I did make a post in our group yesterday with some of the court documents that show it was actually the mom's problem or it was because of the mom that the kids went to foster home and that the mom was on this foster home care plan or something that she did, you know, meet all these criteria to get her kids back. Well, and the reason Dr. Gould couldn't get him, he tried, but the court still had her as a sole custodian. Yes, custodian. Okay. Um, he had no custody. So if he had went and got them, that would be kidnapping. And, and none of that is even relevant. Like there's tons of kids that go into foster home and they don't get murdered. I mean, there's tons of kids that have divorced parents and, uh, you know, grew up in this uh, home where the, the mom and dad don't get along and they don't get murdered. It has nothing to do with her murder. And I just hate that any of that was even brought up. I don't understand why. The way it was presented in Dateline, it was just, kind of a couple, maybe a minute long. And then you, there was nothing else about it. And I'm like, well, that doesn't even do this yeah. case. Just it has nothing, no bearing on the case. Yeah. And the other thing is they kind of glossed over the fact that Danielle lost her battle to cancer and that I know. Dr. Gould not only had to come to terms with his daughter, Rebecca being murdered, but also, you know, Danielle losing her battle with cancer. To have to yeah, bury- and by the way, he doesn't even know where Danielle is That's because awful. the sister you saw on Dateline won't tell him. And that is not a lie. He has tried. I had the text message traffic where he has contacted her and contacted her. He tried to go visit Danielle before she died at Thanksgiving, then at Christmas. No responses. And that's inexcusable. And Dateline producers knew all of this before, and they still chose to let her get airtime. So, and she's done some really horrific things. Especially, I mean, to me, George and Catherine, like she tried to get me fired from the university. She interfered with the VDOC Society invitation that thousands of family members would, I don't know, walk across the planet for. Yeah. And um, again, Dateline knew all that and still aired it. And, you know, we'll be fine. Me, George and Catherine are just fine. Our careers are fine. Like I have a great job in law enforcement. Um, I love doing the cold case stuff, but it's just, there's, when you're making false allegations against your own father, that's just unacceptable, unacceptable. It is. And then when you basically circumnavigate the process that this Mm -hmm. case could have went before the Vidoc, what was it? Five years before at least 2019, 2019 is when the, and this never happens, but a member from the Vidoc society put forth an invitation to the ASP to present her case. And both the the family and the, the sister uh, found out because I published it on our Facebook group. And then she called them up and told a bunch of lies about me and Jim Fitzgerald, the VDOC society member who put forth the invite. And so it never happened. Um, and that's literal obstruction of justice. When you are obstructing a process that could possibly further the case, that's obstructing justice. I mean, she could have actually been arrested if we had the right officer on the case. And that's what I, I guess that's what sticks with me is what is her motive? 
I mean, why would you not want your sister's murder solved? Yeah, so, in terms of motive, I, I just, I don't know. I have some theories. We, Me and George have spoken. We need to find someone who loves doing what we do, but who's also a psychologist, I think, to kind of help us navigate these difficult situations with some family members, because this isn't the only time we've had issues with a family member. No, and that's another thing that we discussed. What is the, at the end of the day, we talked about this. At the end of the day, you want justice for your loved one. So what mm-hmm. if some skeletons are brought out of the closet? You know, it's not the end of the world that, I guess in Rebecca's case, your mother had y'all put, or something that your mother did yeah. had you, who cares? Like you who said. Who cares? Yeah. yeah, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We're I, not going to judge. No. <laughs> At the end of the day, we're all looking at the same thing. We're, and And the thing is, you can even, we've done a case before that like, you know, somebody battled addiction. And then of course, when something happens Mm -hmm. to them, that gets brought up. Well, that's not who they were. They had battled addiction and kicked that. So yeah, knee jerk reaction is you go back and look, were they reusing? Okay. They wasn't then move on. You know, it's just, it's, it's just background information. So yeah, I don't know. And I don't even feel like we dug up any dirt on Rebecca's family. Like, we don't victim blame or shame or anything. In fact, we're, you know, vehemently opposed to that. Correct. Um, and call, call people out if they try to do that. I don't, I don't know. I've wondered if some family members struggle with the fact that their dead loved one is the center of attention for so long and is getting all the attention and they're not. And and I can understand that. I mean, I'm sympathetic to that. You probably get really sick and tired of hearing about your, your dead loved one, but it's like, but if it were you, you would want everything possible done to find your killer and bring them to justice. So, right. I guess that's the thing, you know, just, I just don't understand. I'm like you, I would love for a psychologist or a psychiatrist to sit down and go, all right, this is why they're acting this way. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. but wrapping this thing up, you have your interview with William Miller and some of it you have posted to YouTube. Not yet. Um, I was, I wasn't allowed to record or anything. I couldn't even take a, paper and pencil in Dang. or my bra. That's a whole nother story. <laughs> the underwire, you could have killed him. My underwire <laughs> did not pass the metal detector. Thankfully I had a sports bra on the car. Oh. It pissed me off because it was only a two hour visit and I lost 15 minutes dealing with all that crap. But um, anyways, no, I couldn't record it, but I've got audio of us driving in the prison and discussing things. And then my husband had the recorder going as soon as I came out. So I just kind of like verbally bombed the mouth, (laughs) trying to get everything out that I could remember. And then George called. And so I, I talked to George. And so we have all of that recorded again. There's a lot of details right now that we don't want to publicize. And I also don't want to put it out right away because I don't want people to think this is some publicity stunt. Like we truly are after the truth in the case and that's all that matters. I'm not here to make a podcast. That's not my priority. It's just one media platform that I use. So at some point, yeah, we'll put some of that audio out, but it's not going to be right away. Well, and and the thing is, this case is far from dead in the water. Mm -hmm. Like we said earlier, there are some things that Jennifer's uncovered that would lead you to believe that there were some things that need to be brought to light. And so they're working behind the scenes, her and George both mm-hmm. are. And so, you know, we will stay tuned. And again, for, for sure, for our listeners, if you have not listened to 
the episode and you made it this far, uh, why not go back and listen to <laughs> yeah. episode 46? But also just search Rebecca Gould. You'll find mm-hmm. Jennifer's podcast, Break the Case. You'll find George's podcast, Diamond State Murder Board. And they, you can binge all of their episodes and, and it gets you caught up. And it's a time frame up until William does the plea deal. So I was going to say, if you want to see his full interview and confession, it's on my YouTube channel. So um, you can either, you can just go on YouTube and Google William Miller confession or uh, my channel is Jen Buchholz PI for private investigator. Um, and you can see I've got, well, there's two more segments that need to get uploaded, but they'll be there soon. So. You can catch up on the first eight hours. That are there. <laughs> I know. I I want to watch it, and then but then when you told me how long it is, I'm like, uh, yeah, on. it's a lot. Yeah, it took me weeks to get through it because it just he. I don't know why he's so chatty, Kathy. At the beginning, he loves mm-hmm. to hear himself talk. Oh yeah, he was chatty, Kathy, with me too. So Man. he did probably seventy five percent of the talking when I met with him, but that's fine. I'd rather it that way. Yeah. Because I'm there to listen and learn and see what I can absorb and use. So, yeah. But thanks for having me. Well, and I appreciate the discussion. Well, thank you for coming on again. I can't thank you enough. Um, we are going to get this chopped up and hopefully at the latest out. Um, today is the fifth. The latest it'll be out will be the seventh. Of Sweet. June. That's quick turnaround. Yeah. So I'm going to work. If I can get it out in the morning, I will. Um, if I can't, okay. definitely by yeah. the next day. So. Yeah, no worries. I know that we will be talking again. Uh, you are on the mm-hmm. the case of the Zodiac. You're one of many team players in that. So we can we can catch everybody up on that. That's the, true. The new happenings yep. of that. So we'll just tease that. And then if you have any questions, let me know. You know, you can email us. You can email Jennifer. If you're not a member of Rebecca Gould's Facebook page and you want to catch up on all the the inner workings that are out there, go ahead and join. Again, we'll put a link to our, to that on our, our social medias, but thank you again. Murder of Rebecca Gould is ours. There's a couple of them out there. Yes. You'll see one that says created by family. I mean, feel free to join. It's just all drama based. There's no case file, no anything like progress. (laughs) Right. I'll leave it at that. (laughs) The link that I will put on there is the one that people need to to go to. Don't worry about anything else. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) All right, then. Well, thank you so much. For sure. If you are interested in Rebecca's case, like I said in the interview, please join the Unsolved Murder of Rebecca Gould page on Facebook. There you will find all of the information and the case file documents that they have released up until this point. Jennifer has also hyperlinked her YouTube page to that Facebook group page on her YouTube page. You can find the entire eight hour interview that Mike McNeil had with William. We will be reaching back out to Jennifer at a later date. She is part of a group that has determined who they think is the Zodiac killer. We look forward to talking with her again in the near future about the inner workings of the Zodiac case. Well, Coach, you got anything else? You know I don't. Deuces.